Well, welcome. My name is Kyle Mercer. I'm one of the pastors here at Two Cities Church. And if you're new and tuning in for the first time, let me just tell you a little bit about our church. We're a new church, three and a half years old, uh, but we believe very old things. And we celebrated last week the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a special way on Resurrection Sunday, what many of us call Easter Sunday. And we heard so many stories from, from you and our staff and our elders of people who are tuning in and watching those services. You probably saw this, um, that, that have never maybe watched a service before and maybe never even darkened the door of a church before. And what we're seeing is we're seeing the nuns, the duns, and the drifters returning. Now you go, the nuns, what? Sister Act 1, Sister Act 2, that's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the ladies who dress up in black. I'm talking nuns is a technical term for those who have no religious affiliation. They didn't get to grow up with Christian parents. They didn't grow up in the church. They don't connect to any kind of denomination or spiritual background. And these people, for the first time, they're, they're asking questions. They're tuning in. Maybe you're watching right now, and you, that's you. That describes you. We're glad that you're here. Others, it's the duns are returning. The duns are the people who, they grew up in the church, but they said, I'm done with church, or uh, you know, I'm done with Christianity, or I'm done with religion, or, or I'm done with spirituality. And because of the situations and circumstances and crisis, they're returning. And then the drifters. And that might describe some of you. For a season, you drifted away. Uh, maybe it was a stage of life, maybe it was a season of life, and now you are returning. And let me just say, we're incredibly glad that you are here. And people are tuning in and turning in for a lot of different reasons, right? Our world has changed. If you think about uh, what is being, in the language that people are using right now, is what's being attacked in America, it's really the three things Americans love the most, health, wealth, and autonomy, Right? I mean, what do Americans love more than, I want to be healthy, well, that's being attacked through a virus. I'd like to be wealthy, well, that's being attacked uh, through the economy. Uh, and I'd like to be autonomous and free and do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, well, that's being attacked in the sense that we are on lockdown and shelter in place, and we can't travel, and we can't do all of those things. And so what's happened, and I just want to say this again, because we're talking about this, and this is where you are, this is where I am, that, that home is the new hub. That home is now the spiritual hub, really, according to the Bible, it should always be, right? Home's the first mission field, and home should be the base of ministry and mission and discipleship. But many of us, for the first time, we're realizing, wait, home is the center of life. There are more conversations being had, more meals being cooked, more life being lived in the home. And for some of you, that's difficult because you live alone. And so you are feeling isolated and alone like never before. For others of you, you, uh, you've got your kids at home and your spouse at home and everyone's trying to work and everyone's trying to go to school and everyone's trying to you know, find some time by themselves, but there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of proximity. So let me just give you three words that, that I hope will encourage you and equip you in this season. It's the same three words I'm trying to apply to my life and that our staff and our elders are, are trying to apply to their lives. And it's these three words, devotion, discipline, and development. Let me encourage you that, that this season, however long this season lasts, really on the other side of it, what if your life was more and more defined by devotion? And by devotion, I mean uh, your relationship with the Lord, your spiritual life, your prayer life, your worship life. Maybe you fast for the first time. Maybe you start journaling. Maybe you increase your Bible intake. What if this season and stage of your life, however long it lasts, was defined by devotion? And then second, what about Discipline. Right? What have you created in this season? Healthy habits, right? My dad always told me growing up, he said, uh, the, the bad habits come naturally. It's the good habits that we need to work on, right? And you don't want basically your sweatpants and streaming to be your plan uh, for, for this quarantine. Instead, what would it look like for you to create holy habits? And finally, development. So after devotional, the upward relationship with God, then there's discipline. I've got to get my habits. I've got to get rhythms, routines. I need a budget. I need a calendar. I need a schedule. I need a to-do list. Great. 
Uh, and then development. Where do you need to grow? What do you need to know in this season so that as we get on the other side of it, you can be the healthiest, holiest, most helpful version of yourself? And with that in mind, I just want to pray for you, and I want to pray for our city, and I also want to just tell you this, that we continue to, as a church, want to love and serve and bless our city. This past week, we were able to partner with 12 other churches, a dozen other churches in our city, um, to come alongside medical workers uh, who are working extra hours in this season and to give them gift cards, but more importantly, along with that gift card, a note that clearly thanked them and shared the gospel with them in this season. So I'd like to pray for our church, and I'd like to pray for our city. Please pray with me. Um, Lord, we come right now, and we want to pray first for our church. Lord, we ask that we would be a healthy church in this season, that we would be healthy men and women with healthy families. Lord, I pray for those who feel in our church, they feel isolated and they feel alone. I pray they would turn that uh, aloneness into time with you, that they would turn that isolation into a time of solitude with you, and that they would use the means that you've given us in this season to stay connected to one another. Lord, I, I pray for all of us to be defined by the life of devotion, of discipline, and development in this season, Lord. That we would come out of this the strongest and healthiest and holiest version of ourselves. Lord, we pray for our city and for all of those in our city who are struggling. Those who are struggling with unemployment. Uh, those who are in unique crisis. Lord, we want to be a church. We want to be Christians that love, serve, and bless our city. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, that's the first thing I wanted to tell you guys. Now I want to dive with you guys into the book of Galatians. If you'll type to or turn to Galatians chapter 3, and if you've been following along with us, um, Galatians is a powerful and potent book. I've often said if you open up the book of Galatians, a stick of dynamite, dynamite might fall out. That's because this book's incredibly explosive, and we are about halfway through. And today, and it's kind of an interesting thing to do right after um, Easter, but today we are going to be diving deeply into theology and history in Galatians chapter 3. Um, there, there are many deep things that we need to often know with our minds before they can change our hearts and they can be lived out with our wills. And so what I want us to do today is, is we're going to cover, and this is because this is what Paul, who wrote the letter of Galatians, does, we're going to cover about 2,000 years of history in about 20 verses. We're going to cover 2,000 years of history in 20 verses, and we're going to dive deeply into theology. Now, don't be scared of that word. Um, we're going to learn today a new, a new vocabulary. We're going to talk about words like covenant. We're going to talk about words like promise. We're going to talk about words like law. And here's why. When you become a Christian, you get a new vocabulary. You have to learn new words, right? This is anybody in any industry with any hobby, as soon as you get into it, there's a whole new vocabulary. For example, my wife, she loves Disney. Uh, we've been married for about a decade now. Uh, since we've been married, I've learned a lot about Disney, and I've learned there's a whole new vocabulary. If you talk about uh, getting a pop, Park Hopper Pass. Okay, some of you go, what is that? Others of you who love Disney know exactly what that is. Uh, there is a whole new lingo and a whole new vocabulary that you learn when you enter a hobby or an industry. Well, the same is true with Christianity. And we're going to do, we're going to really, I'm kind of telling you this ahead of time, uh, I'm asking everybody to put their thinking caps on today. Because, and here's an encouraging thing, you are smarter than you think. Um, what we're seeing is that Americans more than ever are interested in two to three hour podcasts. Why is that? Because you're smarter than you think. Uh, we are interested in shows that go five or six seasons long and have incredible character development. Why? Well, because you're smarter than you think. You can easily follow along with, it, with me in this, and I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, but we're going to cover a lot of territory. So let's begin, again, in Galatians chapter 3, and if you'll turn with me to verse 15, here's what it says. Um, to give a human example, brothers... 
And by the way, he's going to give an example because what he just did beforehand was he talked about how we're saved by faith alone and by grace alone in Christ alone. And you've got to understand that when, when he says, okay, we're saved by faith alone and then we're saved by Christ alone and then we're saved by grace alone. Uh, the average person who grew up as a Jewish young boy or young girl is, is going to ask some questions like, well, if it's by faith alone, if it's only belief, do I have to change my behavior at all ever? I mean, that's a fair question. Or if Christ has done everything, do I need to do nothing? I mean, even after I'm a Christian, do I just sit around and do nothing? You know, if it's by grace alone, is there any works that need to happen? Or, you know, what about the law? The big question in chapter three is what about the law? Now, we may go, well, that doesn't seem like an important question. It was to them. Because in the Old Testament, they define the entire Old Testament. They go, it's the law, and it's the prophets, and it's the writings. So they're saying, is at least a third of my Bible useless now? Is it optional? Is it obsolete? Is it obliterated? I mean, what, what is it? And so here's what Paul says. He says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. See, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about covenant, and he's going to take us to the person of God. And here's, here's the first big idea he's going to say, that God is a God of covenants, not a God of contracts. God is a God of covenants and not of contracts. And I want to encourage you with this, that the first thing we're told about God, and he's going to get a lot into law and promise and Abraham and Moses, but to understand any of that, he's going to use a word that we don't really use in our society very much anymore today, and it's the word covenant. Now, here's what he means by covenant. Covenant means this, that God makes promises and God pursues you. That's what covenant means. That God's response to your sin is to make promises, and I hope that this is incredibly encouraging to you as you listen, uh, because what this means is that what God does is pursue us. We don't ultimately pursue him. And some of you know this, right? Some of you ran away from God uh, for a whole season or stage of your life. Uh, all of your single years or all of your college years or all of your medical school years or all of your first marriage or what, whatever it was, you ran from God. And as soon as you turned around, God was right there. And you're like, oh, he's fast. You know? uh, he, he, he quickly follows me. He quickly chases me down. Well, God pursues. That's what covenant is about. And God also makes promises. And really the whole idea behind the idea of covenant is that God loves commitment. Now, God loves commitment. We often don't love commitment, right? I mean, think about it. The, the average person today, particularly millennials, Gen Xers, the next generation, uh, but, but all of us to an extent, we want to turn away from, we don't want to tie ourselves into commitments. This is why people are not getting married. Why? Well, that's a big commitment. You know, this is why people aren't having kids or they're delaying it. Why? Well, because, you know, you get married and then you have a kid, now you're really committed. This is why people want to rent, they don't want to buy a house. Why? Well, because then you're committed maybe to a city, or you're maybe committed to a neighborhood, or you're committed to a certain place. Why don't people want to uh, start and stay in one career for many years? Well, there's all, many reasons for that. One reason is commitment, right? Why is it that you are always looking for the seven-day trial and then wanting to cancel it? <laughs> commitment, right? Why is it that every time we get asked to uh, you know, click, uh, am I gonna go to the party, am I not? I get an invite, I get a Facebook invite, whatever it is. Why is the number one response, right? There's like four yeses, like 10 no's, and like 300 babies, right? It's because we are afraid of commitment. But here's the truth, and I want you to understand this, because this, this is, because we're made in God's image, we were meant to live lives of commitment. God is a God of commitment, and, and the, the quality of your life is connected to the commitments in your life. Right? You marry someone, you have a few kids, you buy a house, you commit to a church, you commit to a career, your life is going to be difficult 
You're going to be pulled into a lot of different things, but your life is going to be very rich and your life is going to be very meaningful. So he starts out with this idea of covenant and God's commitment. Now, this is important to understand, that covenant is different than contract. See, we live in a society, and many, many of you right now are thinking about all the contracts that you have, right? Uh, we, we, in the business world, and maybe in your own personal life, uh, contracts play a huge role in society. Contracts aren't a bad thing, but what's a contract? A contract is, hey, I'm going to make sure I get what I want out of this deal. Um, if you do something wrong, I'm going to make sure you pay. Um, if you do something to me that I don't like, I'm going to make a way for me to get out of this, right? And this is, you see this most in marriage. Most people look at marriage nowadays as a contract. Marriage is really a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, right? Until death do us part, for better or for worse. That's the language of covenant. But most people look at marriage as a contract. You know, think, for example, of prenuptial agreements. Prenuptial agreement says, hey, if this doesn't work out, how do we make sure we each kind of get what we need on the other side of it? Which is, let's figure out our divorce before we get married. Which is, a, which is viewing marriage as a contract, not as a covenant. So what you need to understand is the first big idea underneath all of the other things that are going to be said today is that God is a God of covenant, a God of commitment, who makes promises and pursues us. Now here's the next big thing. He says this, that God is a God of promise and law. God is a God of promise and law. What he's going to do is he's going to go from Abraham to Jesus. This is really amazing. covers 2,000 years. He's going to say whether you're dealing with Abraham and promise or Moses and law uh, or Jesus and his fulfillment of both of those, uh, what you're dealing with is God fulfills his covenants by making promises and giving laws, by making promises and giving laws. Here's one of the things he's talking about, the unity of the Bible. And I just want to encourage you. Paul is defending that the Bible is a consistent, coherent, comprehensive book. Some of you, you went to college and you had one religious studies professor and he or she tried to say, you know, Paul says something different than Jesus and the Old Testament says something than the New Testament. The Gospels say something different than the book of Revelation, which is not true. There is a unity. And, and actually what Paul's doing here, and let me just give you another kind of technical term, he's doing what's called biblical theology. See, systematic theology, and you should know both, systematic theology is what does the entire Bible say about X? Fair enough. Uh, biblical theology is how does some topic or understanding of something progress from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And what he's doing here is he's taking the idea of law, of gospel, of promise, of covenant, and he's saying, let me trace it from uh, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And so here's what he does in verse 16. He starts with Abraham. He says this, now the promises were made to Abraham. And we've talked about this if you've been coming around for a while. In Genesis chapter 12, um, it's, the, it's the great commission in the Old Testament. It's the launching pad for the rest of the Bible. In three verses, God makes an enormous amount of promises to Abraham and to his offspring forevermore. And then the rest of the Bible is that promise being realized. So that's what he's re referencing here. He goes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So he's saying, hey, the ultimate promise was through Abraham to Christ. God loves to make promises. That's part of what it means for God to keep commitments. Now, I want you to understand, and we've got a lot of people watching, and so I want us to understand the difference between this, the difference between religion and Christianity. And religion is, I make promises to God. That's religion. And Christianity is, and the gospel is, God makes promises to me. Like religion is, and many of us have gone through this, right? 
Religion is I'm going to make a promise to God. I'm going to you know, get a ring. I'm going to go to a camp. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to read a book about it. I'm going to tell God that I will always and I will never. And, and then oftentimes we end up just doing it again and we feel guilty again. And, and it's this cycle of I make promises to God, which I don't keep, and then I fail. And so I make bigger promises or different promises to God. That's religion. Christianity and the gospel is something different. It says, hey, listen, actually, here's what happens. God makes promises to us. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. God says things like, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And God says things like, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God says things like, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you will be saved. Those are all promises, and here's why promises are so Powerful. You, you know promises are powerful because you've been affected when somebody you love has broken a promise, right? I mean, how many of you, your lives, just think about it for a second, your life and your family and the background of kind of your extended family is defined by broken promises. You know, somebody stood at the altar and said to you, you know, for better or worse, but they just really meant for better. And things got tough and life got difficult and he left or she left and that broken promise has affected you and those you love for the last decade of your life. But on the other end, you would know the power of when somebody is the kind of person that you can trust. And listen, there are two people who never forget promises. God never forgets his promise and your kids never forget their promise, right? The promises that you make to them, right? I know for me, it's like my kids will come up to me, hey, look, you know, you told us three months ago, you know, that before summer, you'd take us to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, I'm like, oh, we're, we're, we're in quarantine now. You know, shelter in place, can't do it now. Um, but, but it's amazing. I'll find all the time my kids will remember the promises that I've made to them, and they expect me to live them out and to do them for them. And nothing hurts them more than when I say something and I don't follow through on it. And so that's promise. That's the first thing. But then here's the second thing. He talks about law. And he brings up Moses. Look at verse 17. This is what I mean, the law, and he's going to say the law came later. Look, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul, or in the last verse he said it also doesn't add to, so it doesn't take away anything from, or it doesn't add to, a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void, and then he gives an argument for why. For if the inheritance comes by the law, so now he basically is going to talk about a will. You can think inheritance is connected to the will. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he gives another example. He says, hey, look, and listen, this would be another really great example to think about how promises work. You know, do you get your family inheritance because you obeyed and you were a perfect son, or do you get your inheritance because your parents promised it? Well, you know, unless you live in some kind of sick and sadistic family, you're going to get it not because of anything you've done, but because you're connected to the family and because your parents had made priorities and promises a long time ago to leave you something when they were gone. And so that, that's the argument he's making here. But here's a bigger argument. What he's trying to say here is, and what you're going to notice here, if you read Paul, Paul never says anything ultimately negative about the law. And this is the kind of the tension that we have to live in, is that the law has its limits, and we'll see that in a second. Um, but that the law is a good thing. I mean, think about it. The law is, in one sense, the law that's being referred to here is the law, the, the Ten Commandments and what Moses gave. But in one sense, the law has always existed, right? Because uh, the moment that they were in the Garden of Eden and God gave a command, it was quote-unquote law, you could say. And think about it. There's a, there's a positive nature to the law because what is the first, this is something worth thinking about for a while. What's the first command God ever gives us? 
to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion. That's the, it's like, that's the first command. Why? Because it's for our good. God's commands are for the flourishing of the human race. This is why if you read the Old Testament, it makes us feel uncomfortable because if you read Psalm 119, it'll take you a while. So it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is a love letter about the law of God. That's basically what it is. And it's about the word of God, but really he says things in there that probably would make us feel uncomfortable. He says things like, oh, how I love your laws. Or then Jesus comes and he says, hey, listen, if you, in John 14 and 15, Jesus says, if you really love me, you know, you'll obey my commandments. And then James in the book of James says, hey, it's actually the law of liberty of life. I mean, it's the law of liberty. You know, and then Jesus, uh, you know, is, it says at the very end, as he's about to head into heaven, he says, hey, listen, would you please teach uh, all of my disciples everything that I've ever commanded them? And, and so you can see the goodness of the law, but the law has limits. The law is not a ladder right? A, a ladder in the Bible, every once in a while you'll see um, there's a, a ladder, there'll be an image in the Bible of a ladder that stretches from heaven to earth or earth to heaven. But whenever there's a ladder image, man never goes up the ladder. God always comes down the ladder. And, and that, that's a picture of the gospel that God, again, of covenant, God pursues us and God comes after us. And so here's the next thing I want us to see. The law is for us to learn, but it has limits. The law is for us to learn. That's its purpose. It, it has things it wants us to learn. But it has limits. Look at Galatians 3.19. He asked this question. Paul continually asks a lot of questions. Here's his question. Why then the law? Why then the law? He's asking the question, why do we even have the law? And I'm gonna, we're going to give you several answers for that uh, with the rest of our time together. But I want to give you the deepest answer to that question. Um, the deepest answer to why do we have a law, which it's actually, there's a, deep philosophical question behind it even, which is, and I, and I got these kind of questions when I was doing ministry at Duke, is people would ask questions like, well, here, here's a question that people ask, like, you know, could God have created a different law than he created? Like, is the only law he could create, do not steal, and, you know, do not covet, and do not lie, and do not commit adultery, like, could he have created a different law? Did he have a, multiple options, and he just chose one? And the answer to that is no, he couldn't have created a different law because, and this is, this is the heart of the law, the law is the representation and reflection of the character of God. In other words, the, the, one of the main purposes of the law is to tell you what God's like. It's just like if I came over your house or you came over my house and I had certain laws that you were like, that's interesting, you know, I, you come over and I say, hey, you know, take your shoes off right away, and it's kind of a rule in our house, and then I say, hey, would you mind washing your hands, you know, and then you notice that everything, you know, is very clean. You go, well, okay, he's got all these rules about cleanliness. He must be the type of person who cares a lot about clean things. You, you, you learn about the person from the laws that they make. In other words, so that's a good thing, parents. So the rules that you have in your house tell me somewhat about your kids, but probably a lot more about you and what you value, and what you care about. And so the, the deepest answer is that it's a reflection of God's character, but I want you to see what he says in verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So he says, it was added and put in place for a time until the promise could be fully realized. Um, here's, here's, and this is another very deep idea. He's saying this, and this is something worth thinking about. And again, you know, we've got to, this takes some thought. We're talking about the relationship between the promise 
of God in the gospel and the law of God in the commands. And, and this is something that theologians have talked about at great length, but, but here's the idea. The idea is that you can't go around the law, you have to go through it. Here's another way to say it. You, you can't skip over the entire Old Testament and just get to the New Testament. I want to read you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a well-known Christian uh, in the 1900s who, who wrote, wrote a ton, thought deeply about God and the Bible and its implications. And, and here's what he said. He says this, It is only when one submits to the law that one can speak of grace. I don't think it is Christian to want to get to the New Testament too soon and too directly. And the whole idea is, and we're going to spend the rest of the time kind of unpacking this, without the law, we can't really see ourselves rightly, understand rightly who God is, understand rightly who we are, and understand the, the significant difference and divide between us that Christ had to bring us together. And so let, let me just give you, I want you to see again, look at verse 19. We're going to focus on a word in there. It says this, why then the law? It was added because of, and if you circle or underline in your Bible, you might want to circle the word transgressions. That's, there are kind of three word, main words in the Bible to, to be used to talk about your and my rebellion, uh, our disobedience, and our foolishness, and our unbelief. And, and I want to give you these three words because I think it, they're going to help you understand yourself. They're going to help you understand God more. They're going to help you understand your need for Christ and the cross more. The first word is sin. That word doesn't show up here, but that's probably the most common word when you think about disobedience and distrust. And sin literally means to miss the mark. Now, uh, and it's, it's actually an archer, archery term. And it's very important because if you think about it this way, um, we love so much uh, hitting a target, right? In fact, think about how many sports are only about hitting a target, right? Soccer, get the ball in the goal. A football, get the football in the end zone and hit, hit the wide receiver. Uh, golf, get the ball in the hole. Uh, hockey, get the puck in the goal. Basketball, get the ball in the hoop. I mean, we love seeing somebody hit a target so much that we will pay a lot of money to watch people who are very good at it hit targets. And so the first thing that kind of the first idea in the Bible that shows up uh, is this idea of sin, which means, hey, I'm not hitting the target, I'm missing the mark. That's the first idea. The second big idea when it comes to sin is this word iniquity. Uh, iniquity means to twist, to pervert, to distort, or to corrupt. And that's another way that we sin, right? Um, we, we end up taking uh, something God created and we corrupt it. We end up taking something that God designed it could be food, it could be relationships, it could be sex, uh, it could be family, and we distort it. Um, and we end up perverting the good things that God has given us. So that's the second. But the third one is the one used here. It's transgression. And it's an important one because transgression literally means to cross a line. And so the reason transgression is so important is it shows our inner distrust in external disobedience. And so it, it makes it very, very clear. What, what the law does is it articulates how and shows me how sinful I am, and it brings out in me different desires to do sinful things. And we're going to see this more, which is why uh, I want you to look at verse 21. It says this, um, is the law contrary to the promises of God? This is the second question he asks. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So again, he's comparing law and promise. But the scripture imprisoned 
everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I want you to see at the end of verse 21, he says this, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed uh, would be by the law. So he's saying this, that basically the law cannot give life. I've heard it described this way. The law is a thermometer, but not a thermostat. The, the law will tell you the temperature of your heart, but cannot change your heart. The, the law can diagnose what's wrong with you, but it cannot cure you. And so which leads me to our final point, which is this. The law is to ultimately show us our need for the gospel. The law is to show us our need for the gospel. See, I want you to look here, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So that's not a great language right there. You know, he's saying the law is good, but because we were sinful and broken, it actually made us captive. It imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So it ended up, it was, it was like a prison for us because we knew we actually couldn't obey it. So then he says this in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian. And that's an interesting word because really what that means is, is a disciplinary tutor. So it brings you, it, it, this was a, a type of um, school teacher in that time in Roman society uh, that would not be a parent. You didn't really have a relationship with the guardian just like you can't really have a relationship with the law, but that the guardian would discipline the child severely and bring the child into maturity. And that's what it's saying here. So that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So he's basically saying that when Christ comes, he transforms the way the law is used. And I want to, with our time left together, I want to talk about, just bring it all down, summarize it uh, for us to all take away together. What are the three purposes of the law? Because if you get these right, it will affect your family. It will affect your business. It will affect your marriage. It will affect your home life. It will affect how you disciple people. We have to get all three of these right. Let me just give them to you. These have been passed on. This is how Christians have understood the law of God uh, connected to the promises of God on the other side of Christ. Let me give them to you. First, the civil use of the law. The civil use of the law, and this is so important, and this is the main way the government uses the law. It, is, it has a restraining power. You could, it's, it, here's the image, a guardrail. So the civil use of the law is um, we are not as bad as we could be because we fear punishment, prison, and consequences, Right? It's like, you know, there's certain people who won't rob you, and it's not because they're Christians, it's because they don't want to go to prison. And you're like, well, I'm glad I'm not getting robbed, right? <laughs> because there, there's, there's a certain sense in which the civil use of the law, um, is, it, it protects God's people in the image of God. That's what it does. Uh, here's, a, here's, a way, here's a way you can think about it. Like, there are so many things that you probably don't want to do not because your heart's been changed or transformed, not even necessarily because you've been convicted about it, but simply you don't want other people to look down on you. You don't want to feel shame. I mean, and here's the ultimate test. This is an old, I don't know if it was Socrates or Plato who first said this, but uh, they said, if you want to know how evil your heart is, imagine you had a ring that made you invisible. Now, if you just think about that for a second, what would you do if you, could, if you found a ring and it made you invisible? I, I know you're like, I would go to the homeless shelter immediately. You know, I'd help them. You know, I, I'd go and I'd, I'd secretly help the homeless so nobody would see me. No, that's not what you're thinking. 
In fact, it's interesting, there was a movie that came out in 2000, an old movie, with Kevin Bacon on this idea. It was called Hollow Man. And the whole idea of the movie is that he finds out how to become invisible and it completely destroys him. Because what it ends up revealing is all of the evil things in his heart that he wanted to do but never could do because other people saw him. So that's the first thing, the civil use of the law. Romans 13 talks about this use. This is still a use that is good and brings order and expectation to homes to into society. That's the first use of the law. You can think of it as a guardrail. It's called the civil use of the law, and it restrains evil. The second use of the law is the convicting use of the law. So the civil use, now the convicting use. Um, you think of it as the image would be a mirror. And what it does is it reveals, um, now not everybody repents because of it, but it reveals the sinfulness in our hearts. See, this is what, what Paul says. Paul says that in Romans 7, and it might be a good thing to talk with your community groups about, in Romans 7, Paul writes, and it's this very honest passage about his own struggle with sin. And he says, I'm, I'm summarizing here, but he basically says that what the commandment that convicted me the most was do not covet. He said, because when, the, when it, the commandment came out that said do not covet, he said, it brought about in me every desire to covet. You know, and maybe you can relate. I, as I thought about this, I thought about back, back in the day when I was a teenager and my parents told me no parental advisory CDs and no rated R movies. And I wanted to get the CD with the biggest parental advisory sticker possible for some reason. It, it brought about in me a desire to watch rated R movies even more and to try to listen to parental advisory music even more. And, and the image here is a mirror. And I heard someone say this one time, um, a mirror will show you how dirty your face is, but you can't wash your face with the mirror. And that's the whole idea here. You're going to need the water of the gospel to do it, which leads to the third thing is, so the first is the civil use, the second is the convictional use, and the third is the Christian use or the changed heart use of the law. And it's, it's the use of the law after you've come to Christ. And the image here would be of a compass. So, you know, the law is a guardrail with the civil use of the law. The law is a mirror with the convictional use of the law. And the law is a compass with the Christian use of the law. And here's what it means. Once I've given my life to Christ, he changes my heart and I want to obey the law. And, I, and, I, and what happens is you see God not just as lawgiver, because that doesn't make you want to obey, but you see God as loving father and you want to be like your father and your older brother. I, I see this all the time in my family. I've got you know, three kids, I, you know, I talk about them often, but my youngest, Elon, he's three, he's got an older brother who's six and an older sister who's eight, and Elon, it's so obvious, looks up to William so much, the six-year-old. He says, hey, all the time, uh, what, what do you want to eat for dinner? Well, what's William eating? It's like, that's what he wants to eat. Or, you know, he'll come down probably once or twice a week, and he'll be wearing jeans and a button-down shirt, and he, and he says, look, I look like a pastor. That's what he says. And it's because, you know, and I didn't have to tell him, hey, you know, dress up. I want you to dress nice. I've never said that to him one time. But he loves me. He knows I love him. He loves his brother. He knows his brother loves him. That's changed and transformed his heart, and therefore he wants to be like us. And, and, and so this is what's so powerful is that Christ comes. I want you to see this again one more time in verse 24. It says this, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We're going to talk more about this next week, but our identity has changed to where we're no longer slaves to the law, but we're sons to God. We're sons and daughters of God. 
And this happens because Christ comes and he fulfills both the promise and the law. So he fulfills the promises of God by coming to us and doing all the things that God said he would do. He said he would come. He said he would be with us. He said he would save us. He said he would take us safely home. And those are the things that Christ came to fulfill. But not only did Jesus fulfill the promises, he also fulfilled the law. And this is why the life of Christ is so important. You know, it's interesting. If you read old, old uh, confessions of faith, you hear about the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. There's one big thing that's missing from most uh, statements of faith and most, most church confessions. It's the life of Christ. What Christ does is he comes, and the first thing he says in his most famous sermon is, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the, the first place Jesus goes when he starts his ministry is into the wilderness and into the desert. Why? Because that's where Israel failed to obey the law. And instead, he goes through the same three major temptations that Israel went through. He says, that's it. I'm going to worship the right God. I'm going to trust him completely. I'm going to be incredibly faithful to him in incredibly difficult circumstances. And so the, the call out of this verse is to say, see the law as a mirror in your life that convicts you of sin, but don't leave it there. Don't let the law leave you there. Go to Christ to be forgiven, to be cleansed. Give Jesus Christ your sin in yourself. And what you're gonna see is when you give your life to Christ, you're going to be overwhelmed by God as your father, Jesus Christ as your older brother, by God's commitment to make promises and pursue you, it changes and transforms your heart so that you're the type of person who wants to love God and love your neighbor. Let's pray to be that type of church and those type of Christians in a season like this. Pray with me. Um, Lord, that's our prayer, that we would realize that Jesus Christ is our great older brother who came to fulfill all the promises, who came and obeyed all of the law perfectly. Lord, let that so change and transform our hearts that we would be able to honestly say, we love the law. Not because we have to, earn, it's not a system of salvation for us, but, but it is a way for us to be like our father and be like our great older brother, Jesus Christ. In his name we ask, amen.